Old School with DP and J on 93.7 The Ticket and theticketfm.com. Welcome back to Old School, 93.7 The Ticket. Husker Hall of Famer Jay Foreman is here. Nathan Brennan running the, the mothership. Uh, Nathan, this man deserves an intro. Can you hit this man's? Like, we got to make a statement with this one. And a rookie, Tony McGee, number 71 from Bishop College in Texas, became a starter and kept the job for the rest of the year. Tony McGee, number 71, had a fine sophomore season on the young, rebuilt defensive line. When they didn't get the passer, number 78, Tony McGee did. Defensive pressure created opportunities that helped spur the Redskins' late-season push to the playoffs. Let's bring him in. He's a mentor. He's a friend. He's family. I love this dude to pieces. Tony McGee, what's happening, Tony? EP, man. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good, man. Thank hey, you. man, congratulations, first of all, on all you've accomplished, man. But I knew it anyway when I first met you. You was that person that was going to do the great things you're doing, man. So I'm proud of you. We old people are proud of you young people. All right. I'm, you're not going to make me cry here, bro. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to make me there. So for listeners to understand that this young kid who was curious about sports, and I, I, was, I was around it, um, you know, Tony was the first one to put his arm around me and say, come on, close, come sit with me, um, be in this space. And more importantly, said that I belonged in the space. And for somebody outside the game to be welcomed in by somebody, and we all need the great cosign. Well, here, here, here he is in his magnificence. And not only the the playing career that we'll talk about, but we'll also talk about the fact that you know owning your own television show in Washington D.C. for over thirty years, and uh, your job currently and manning the sidelines uh, there at FedEx Field, and and then you know part of the other story that Jay Foreman wants to talk about with the Black Fourteen. But let's start let's start about you know back. Let's go back. Um, when did you know that? the NFL was going to be a part of your life and that you belonged? Uh, maybe one day in my sophomore, junior year, I think in college, someone told me. Uh, that was after the Wyoming situation, which we'll talk about that later. But I never went really went to college to play football. I went for education. My father had died the year before when I was a junior. My mother was trying to, my sister already was at the University of Michigan. I was trying to get in school. So getting a scholarship was what, what really was important to me because I needed education. So I never really went into it thinking that I'd get an opportunity to play pro ball. I did not know that until late into my junior year after we had been put off the team in Wyoming that it was a lot of people interested. And so when I went to Bishop my senior year, I played in nine games there. Uh, I had a real good year. I had like 109 tackles, and I made black college All-American and, and went went to the Chicago game where they had the 46 best players in the country. And that's when I started to realize that uh, I had opportunity. 
but I never took it for granted because I always knew there was a lot of good guys up there. So to answer your question, it really wasn't until after my senior year that I realized uh, people wanted me. Tony, you mentioned, uh, you know, about being the, you know, the Wyoming 14. Uh, obviously, you know, my dad, you know, the story goes that, you know, his class with himself, um, Reuben Carter, um, Dominic Rayola's dad were the first in 1968 to go, you know, and obviously <laughs> go down to the University of yeah. Miami. So I remember talking to my grandfather about it uh, when I was kind of coming up to, you know, to pick colleges and my grandmother, how she was so scared for, you know, my dad to, you know, leave D.C. and go down there. But then you were up in Wyoming, which is obviously way different than being, you know, obviously down south or even D.C. But the biggest thing is talk about the courage it took. And I don't think young kids really realize. I was blessed to have my daddy talk to me about it. That was one of the big motivating things for me to always push myself through any hard times I had in college. But talk about the courage it took to, one, be at Wyoming, um, be part of a you know successful team four and zero, but then also be willing to take a stand and 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 be willing to put yourself I guess interests or you know football interests to the side for something bigger um, than than that. Just talk about the courage and then talk about the courage also to go to another college, even though if it was kind of forced, but you know still uh, to start over essentially, knowing uh, they were you know really watching or maybe try to put a black cloud over your name, which obviously, you know, couldn't last long because, you know, the, your character and play was uh, next level. Well, it did, really. And i tell you, when I was going to mention that the Chicago Tribune All-Star game, I had a, co- a uh, person from the uh, Chicago Bear personnel because they had drafted me in the third round come and told me, uh, Tony, you just gone and play ball. We all know you can play ball, but we're lucky that we got you because you were going first round to the Rams until they called University of Wyoming, and they indicated I was the main troublemaker. So I ended up getting drafted. They drafted Jackie Umblood, and uh, I got drafted in the third round. Well, that's all good because I didn't even know if I was going to get drafted because what transpired is when you went to the University of Wyoming, you always found out about playing BYU at that time. Right. It always was negative. I can remember the last game I played on the field. A guy jumped into the back of my legs. I told the official, he told me to shut up and play ball. Uh, they told us when we got there that we couldn't go up into the Church of the Latter-day Saints for the simple reason we were black, never could rise to the high echelon. A man was the reasoning, but they just said we couldn't go and go out the best. And then when you played them, it always was a dirty game and everything. And even our own coaches, even our own other players, I remember one player, other than the other black players, that when they told me to shut up and play ball, they said uh, they whipped me. And this is Larry Nails. I even say his name. And he was one of the greatest players on the team. But when we went in there, what happened was the Black Student Alliance had heard about all this. And they had heard about how Brigham Young thought about African-American people. Therefore, they wanted to do something to show at homecoming that we are aware of this and we're protesting the way they treated black people over the years. Well, they knew we were having a good year. The Sugar Bowl had just called and said that we win one more, two more games that we'd be in the Sugar Bowl. And I was personally having a good game. Uh, I had 11 sacks in four games. I had seven against Air Force. So I was really rolling there. And so it was a big, it was a big problem that we had to look at and we would have to, as you said, sacrifice. So what we did a few of us went to the meeting 
they asked us, would we be a part of a protest, which we know we couldn't do that. But they said, well, would you wear black armbands? I said, well, what we'll do is go back to the rest of the 14 and give them an opportunity to say if they want to wear them or not. But we began with our married players. We told them, look, we have a coach named Coach Eaton, as you guys know, and he's the kind of guy that he's hot-headed. He's going to lose his mind when this goes on. So you guys shouldn't be involved with it if you don't want to because you have wives. Well, everybody stayed anyway, so we went over there and we said, well, let's do this. Let's go over and show him the armband. And the last thing we said that if he objects, we will play the game and then we'll talk about it afterwards. Well, we walked over to the stadium as soon as we got in the door. First he made us wait, and then he came out and said, I'm going to save all of you a lot of time and breath. As of this moment, you're no longer a Wyoming Cowboy. And I want to see you in the, in the field house. He took us in the field house, ran it and raved at us for two hours, told us none of you, half of you don't know who your parents are. I picked up you off the street picking up cigarette butts, Tony McGee. Half of you don't even know where you are. Go home. Go back to the black colleges of the world. You know I'm not going to have this. And if anybody tried to speak, he told me to shut up. Now, this is our coach. So they put us off the team. Now, they weren't the only one wrong ones because the Black Student Alliance who approached us told us, look, we know you're taking a chance on this, so we have schools lined up waiting for you guys. Well, that wasn't true either. So it turned down to after I got put off, I'm a guy, and all 14 of those players, out of all 14 of them, we had at least eight to 10 that could go pro. All of us were out, had nothing to do. We had to try to get away from that school because we got death threats and everything. And I got one opportunity to one of the black 14. His name was Jerry Berry. He was going back down to Tulsa, Oklahoma. That's where he lived. And then he was going to go over to Dallas to a small college called Bishop College. And I remember the coach, not only he took me sight unseen and gave me a full ride. So, you know, when I look at that whole thing, it was right now what you really need to know is the justice is being served right now. We had our 50th anniversary a few years ago. You have a, uh, you look on our website, black14.net. What has happened in the last three years Jesus, Latter-day Saints, the individuals we were fighting, they have come to us and they're giving us 36 trucks. On each of the 36 trucks, what we can take and go into our communities, the underserved communities, and feed people, since food right here, food is really very important, each truck has 40 tons of food on it. So for the last two or three years, we've been going around helping people all over the country due to what the Latter-day Saints did. So what I did, and I said that for one reason, I can't tell you the whole story, but I will sometimes try to get it to you guys. But at the same time, it's a story that has finally worked out where justice was served. And I'm saying literally and fixedly. And the thing that's important about that, yes, they did a lot of things to us. A lot of people suffer. But right now we're working together to help a lot of other people. Tony, that that's uh, we're talking to Tony McGee. Um part of the Black 14 uh, at Wyoming. Um, also, you know, one of the unofficial sack leaders in the NFL, uh, owner of his own television show, still representative of the Washington Commanders, <clears throat> and handling the conversations, the difficult conversations in this space. A lot of the history of the NFL and college football, I learned sitting next to Tony just listening to stories. Um, and, and, and it moves everything. Um, I got a, a, a text uh, a little, a few weeks ago, from a few months ago, 
and it mentioned Jay's dad and Tony McGee. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a minute. All right. Tony, tell me, what are your when I say the name Chuck Foreman, what comes to mind? Chucky Foreman, Chucky Superstar. <laughs> <laughs> and I tell you what, Chucky was one of the first ones and I and I'll tell you why I say that. And you know, I got the privilege of saying now because I've been around the league so long. But he was the first runner. He may not have been as fast, but he had to move somewhat similar to Gail Ferris. Yeah. And, I mean, he, he could cut on a dime. He could make the big break. He could catch the ball. He could do it. And he came to the thing. Was, I was in New England, and he when he left uh, the Vikings, he came to New England, and that's what we started calling Chucky Superstar because he was a superstar. That's big right there, yeah. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and he, I tell you he, what, he, talks highly he was one of, you, of the you know. first ones, and that's your father, Jay? Yeah, that's my dad, man. I claim him every day of the week. <laughs> hey, he's the real deal. He, 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 he was the real deal, and, you know, we we enjoyed having that. We had good fun, and I always remember when he, he came because I had watched him for years, ran after him a couple of times, so it was a pleasure to have him on my side. Tony, who was the better dresser? Because I, I, I've got a picture of you, and i got a picture of him side by side. I know both of y'all uh, put a lot of time in the, in the afro and the wardrobe. Who was the better dresser? I'm going to say the same thing he would have said. If it's him, if you ask him, he's going to say him. If it's me, I'm going to say me. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how that works. Hey, Tony, it, the, the conversation now about the league is – the 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 curiosity about how quarterbacks should be touched, sacked, thrown yeah. around. Um, you played in the day where there were basically no rules to how you sacked a quarterback. As you watch today's game, how do you think about it? What do you think the right way of handling this is? What's the next direction for the NFL and how defensive linemen are allowed to to hit, touch, tackle uh, quarterbacks? Not just defensive linemen, they've made it where defensive backs have a hard time covering. Linebackers have to get in the middle, the middle zone, and they, they can't touch anybody coming across there. I remember when I played, if you came across the middle zone, you got a forearm in the face. Mm-hmm. See, they've made that not happen. And with the defensive linemen, that was ridiculous what happened last week. Nobody is important enough, not even the GOAT, where he can have them to call a pass on the interference where it wasn't. And then we see the same thing happen again. They did all of this, and he was on the show with me when they started doing it. Mm-hmm. They wanted a product. That's the thing. They wanted a product that people would buy. People, they knew the defenses win championships, but offense sells tickets. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to make sure that these individuals would be successful. So they did it at, at, at the price of defensive players. I think they have to change it back, though, because now they're making it where if a defensive player just, I mean, I've seen so many plays where, Offensive player push off, a defense player touch him, he got a defensive penalty. I know you want scoring, but we want fairness as well. But I look at the whole game, D, and you know you've been around in a while. It's changed so much. And, Jay, you know it because you're around with your father. Yeah. It's changed so much. that it's, it's ridiculous. And, you know, I used to sit back and listen to the older players because, I mean, you think about the generations. I played with uh, all the way back with Gail Sarris and Dick Buckus and, and Jay's father, all the way up to Daryl Green and, and Charles Mann and all of them here. And I've seen so much change within the game. But the one thing about it is 
you as a player, you have to have your own game within a game. They may not change the defense, but you have to figure a way to defeat what they're doing to you. And I always felt like you had four moves, and you take all of them look to start the same, but each one of them ends different. And then the last one is always your bread butter move. All players are going to have to start doing that. You just can't run out there and run into people anymore. You just can't run out there and not contain the quarterback. You have to go out there because they want these teams to score and they're going to give them an opportunity. In the future, though, we are getting such good defensive players that I look at some of these young defensive linemen and they're taking over games. So now you're getting the caliber of player and they're that way for the simple aspect that the NFL have made them be that way. You can't just be average anymore and play defensive line. You can't be average to play defensive back. We all knew you couldn't be average within the NFL, but at the same time, now it's a little bit harder for the defense. Tony, I, again, um, I admire you. Um, I appreciate you. Um, everything that I am now, you, you, your, your handprints and fingerprints are on. And My man, you know, that's just nice for you to say, but it's not that you did your own work. I watched you work. I watched you the way you came through the different places you were, even when you was at that top chef restaurant down in Washington, D.C. Yes, sir. I watched you, man. <laughs> and you work your way through it. Then you're in Colorado. You're doing your thing. Wherever you've gone, you've done well. And I can remember the first night that I knew you had the, the uh, opportunity to do things. One night, you and I met over Gary Clark's house. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about different ways of marketing. You two young men had so many ideas that I have utilized on the show over 38 years. I tell you what, you still have good ideas. You keep going forward because you'll be on the phone one day with some individuals. They're going to say, you guys made them. And that's what we have to do. we got to pass it back. Keep it going. Sir, you... Uh, I appreciate you so much. Um, I'll ask you to do this again because there's so much more to Tony McGee than what we just talked about. I'm going to bug you and have you come back again and break it down for us. You are, are, are a great ambassador to the game, and you're a great man, and I love you to pieces. I appreciate you, Tony McGee. I you really as well, do. man. And, I, and look here, I've started a podcast, and we is on YouTube in a minute, and we got the show. I want both of you guys – uh, make sure you get back in touch with me, D, so I can set it up. For, we're doing them virtually, so I can set them up and get your guys on both of them. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Sir, that hey, is – yeah, Nice meeting you, man. Oh, you know it's all good. Once I, get, <laughs> Jesse, I know I'm hitting you up once I come back. Right, once I come back out there to D.C., man. Okay. Yeah. Look forward to seeing you. All right, man. Hey, you guys take care of yourself. Thank you, Tony. Get in touch with me, D. Yes, sir. That is Tony Thank McGee. Uh, Bears, Redskins, Patriots, um, Super Bowl champion. All around good dude. Throw the break more. Old school. When we come back. Watch Old School Live on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch. Old School with DP and J on 93.7 The Ticket and theticketfm.com. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. 2023 Aria has limited availability. All-wheel drive expected availability early 2023, subject to change.